Welcome back to a breaking edition of Plenary Session. This is being recorded on Christmas Eve, and I hope to put it out on Christmas Eve. I'm joined by Dr. Mani Moyudin, an assistant professor at the Huntsman Institute in Utah. I'm joined by Raj Chakraborty, who is an assistant professor at Columbia University. And I'm joined by Aaron Goodman, associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. And we're here to talk about two concerning safety signals with the CAR-T products that have been released about a couple weeks ago and then just in the last couple of days. Mani, take it away. So what are we hearing about CAR-T products in myeloma? What's the safety signal going on here? All right. So there are two FDA-approved products, uh, CAR-T products in myeloma. There's IDSL and then there's Siltacel. So what we just heard from the FDA relates to Siltacel. And this was in its original trial that led to uh, accelerated approval, which was the CARTITUDE 1 study in which 97 patients got Siltacel. And we just found out that amongst those 97 patients, 10 patients developed myeloid malignancies. So that's very concerning, a 10% rate of myeloid malignancies amongst 97 people who, who got Siltacel. Now, this is in the backdrop of some news that came a few weeks ago, where we uh, where the FDA had an announcement that there's a risk of T-cell lymphoma with CAR-Ts, but it's important to note that that risk was order of magnitude less than what we're seeing here. So this is definitely very concerning, and let's talk about the, the implications of this. Okay, and just to clarify a couple things, when you say myeloid malignancies, you mean MDS, AML, you don't mean myeloma. Correct. That's correct. I mean, yes. I mean, myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia, really scary cancers that um, are, they often, you know, lead to death, basically. So it's not something to be taken lightly. And the T-cell lymphoma signal that they had talked about a few weeks ago, this is when the CAR-T construct itself becomes an oncogenic T-cell lymphoma, and you can prove it by taking the T-cell lymphoma and sequencing for the construct. Correct. And then the last thing to say is, can you put this in perspective in myeloma? We've known a bit about second malignancy. Could you talk about second malignancy after Revlimid, for instance? Absolutely. So we know that Revlimid uh, increases the likelihood of myelodysplastic syndrome. We know that melphalan, high-dose melphalan, which we do with transplants, that increases the risk of secondary tumors. We know that when you add melphalan and Revlimid, there's a cumulatively increased risk, but that's not in the ballpark of 10%, right? What we It depends on what data you look at, but that is usually less than 5% is usually in the ballpark of 2 to 3% risk. And that is over a much longer follow-up. So I'm going to give you um, an example of this. There was some excellent data that was published from the University of Arkansas, which, you know, was 15 years of follow-up. And they were doing tandem transplants, so back-to-back -back transplants, heavy-duty cytotoxic chemotherapy as induction. There's not things we do anymore, right? Even with that heavy-duty chemotherapy, 15 years of follow-up, only eight out of 177 folks developed a myeloid malignancy. So just, I mean, this is obviously something that's a bit of an outlier and is something that is worrisome and it's more than what we would expect with just a transplant alone or a transplant and Revlimid. Okay, that's great. Raj, tell us a little bit about the CAR-T products, Siltacel, Idacel, which is the good one? People say, which is the good one? Which is the one that's weaker? And what is the evidence base that supports the use of these products? How are they being used right now in practice in myeloma? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, if you look at the face value, look at the response rate, MRD negativity rate, and PFS, you know, Siltacel seems to be 
a product with at least better efficacy compared to IDSL. Uh, but I I would say that from the beginning, I have been a little bit skeptical and I, I don't think I can be 100% sure that Siltacil is better than IDSL because the patient populations were just so different, not only in the single arm trials, but also if you see in the randomized trial, for example, in Cartitude 4, which is Siltacil in early relapse, you know, less than I think a third were data refractory, whereas in Karma 3, which is a similar trial of IDSL in early relapse, about 95% were data refractory. So I don't think we can compare, you know, the numbers between the trials. But even if you, you know, if, if you look at the PFS in the, like, late relapse in a heavily pretreated setting, the initial trials that led to the accelerated approval, or I think actually the full approval of both IDSL and Siltacil, you know, the Siltacil has a PFS you know, it's a very, very long PFS, it's roughly about three years, um, whereas IDSL roughly about, you know, eight to nine months um, with, with the caveats of different patient population. Now, looking at the toxicity, you know, overall, I think if you look at the CRS and ICANs, you know, the traditional ICANs, those are fairly similar. One thing that stood out was the late neurotoxicity was higher in Siltacel. You know, in IDSL, there have been, I think, some case reports here and there, and uh, but but it's not... With, with IDSL, we have not really seen that signal. Even in the randomized trial, you know, we have not seen that signal yet uh, of the late neurotoxicity, including the Parkinsonian symptoms. And there have been some reports of, I think, uh, cranial nerve palsies. Now, coming to second malignancy. So, you know, as I think uh, Manni alluded to, so it, with Siltacil, we, we saw that with the long-term follow-up about, I think, two-year follow-up, which was uh, the JCO paper, I think, earlier this year by Dr. Martin, that had about 10% of patients developing secondary hematologic malignancies. Whereas in IDESL, the CIBMTR data is, I think we have about one year of follow-up with that and about only 1% have developed secondary hematologic malignancies. The CIBMTR data on Siltacil is still not out yet as a paper. It was, I think, presented at ASCO last year, but yeah, we hope to see the paper soon. I think that will also give us more clarity. One more thing I would add, though, is uh, the legend study from China, which was the original product, you know, that was uh, later on adopted by Janssen. That had a four-year follow-up manuscript, I think, last year. And surprisingly, in that manuscript, there were no secondary hematologic malignancies. There were about 5% secondary solid tumors. So I'm not sure whether there were truly none or whether the reporting, you know, wasn't good enough. Uh, but that is, I think, one of the really long-term, like, four-year follow-up data that we have from uh, from uh, the Legend product. So I think that's one important point, which is that all of these numbers are the floor and not the ceiling, because there can always be unreported cases, particularly in these large data sets. Um, but, you know, it's important to put for comparison. But Raj, could you also tell us, what's the efficacy data? If your patient says, you know, you're going to be CAR-T, what study do you hang your hat on to justify giving CAR-T products? Which setting do you mean the late, say, like currently FDA approved setting, right? FDA approved setting, yeah. The randomized so, data, yeah. Yeah, so for the, for, you know, currently the the place where we, where we are using CAR T patients who are triple class refractory, and in that population, I am, you know, to be honest, I'm not really too concerned about the secondary malignancies because those are the patients who really have no other option. Uh, you know, at this time though, just given the, you know, the stellar PFS difference between Siltacil and Idacil, I would say that if I have options of both, I am choosing Siltacil, you know, with the caveat that I'm telling patients about uh, the late neurotoxicity risk, which is there with Siltacil, um, you know, but I am kind of, especially if it's a high risk patient, I'm on, you know, on the verge of choosing Siltacil, you know, but again, I, I, if you, if somebody asks me, do I know 100% that is better than Idacil, I don't know, uh, but just given the really long PFS, um, and I would love to hear what, you know, Aaron and Mani, how you guys are deciding that. 
Yeah, and I guess the only point I want to make is that the Cartitude 4 study shows PFS benefit of Siltacel over standard of care, dealer's choice, except it's not a truly unfettered choice because you can't give Dara and Carfilzomib together. So it's a, a little bit of a restricted choice, and uh, it still does not have overall survival. Is that correct? It only has PFS to date. Yes. Cartitude 4. Okay. So Aaron, and then we're going to get into this. Aaron, any thoughts on this issue? This is what just hot off the press. I mean, this is a, this is a high rate of second malignancy. I mean, maybe it's not all attributable, but uh, it's higher than anything we've seen. Higher than Revlimid, higher than anything. What do you think, Aaron? It's, it's definitely very concerning. We have to all put this into context. I I think, you know, if I'm still seeing a patient with penta, or whatever you guys call it these days in myeloma, refractory myeloma to all the drugs, and they still have a reasonable performance status, uh, I'm not opposed to giving Siltacel uh, in this situation, even if it carries that, that risk of myeloid malignancies with appropriate consent. But um, I think, you know, there's two ways to react to this, this data. One is, oh, it's blaming on something else. Uh, it's the alkylating agents. It can't be the wonderful car. Or the other way is to take pause and really reevaluate things and maybe put a halt. It's now I, I am as a clinician and investigator studies looking at this product earlier, which we are very well going to be opening up one in the first line. Uh, um, it's going to give me pause, uh, uh, you know, giving a, a newly diagnosed myeloma patient uh, Siltacel uh, uh, where they can live a very long time without siltacel, uh, and it carries a 10% risk of myeloid malignancy is very concerning. And to give it to healthy asymptomatic things is just batshit crazy at this point. Uh, uh, um, we can get into that, but I think investigators in the myeloma community now needs to be like, okay, we need to take this seriously. We can't ignore this, and maybe it'll end up being not as bad as it seems. But we need to really evaluate closely, especially as we're sprinkling this stuff in every setting and moving it up to our healthier patients. And then one thing people should remember is, I'm old enough to remember, is that when people worried about the second malignancy with Revlimid, it was the same playbook. The first thing people said was, it's not the Revlimid, it's the Melphalan. And if you didn't give the Melphalan before, you wouldn't have second malignancy. Those things have largely been disproven. The desire to downplay a safety signal is extremely high among conflicted investigators, in my experience, in myeloma. And then the other thing, Raj, maybe you'll mention, in the smoldering myeloma study of Revlimid, there is a second malignancy signal even in that ECOG study. Is there not, Raj? Yeah, in the in the safety run-in, there was I think one ALL, if I remember correctly. You know, in the randomized part, there's a small number of patients, so it's very hard to. And they only had I think three three years of follow-up, median follow-up. You know, when in the JCO paper, so it's very hard to parse out with just three years of follow-up and you know about hundred some patients total. Very hard to parse out a signal. I think in that setting, uh, I think we need really long-term follow-up data, larger number of patients. Okay, Mani, let's get into it. So you have a bone to pick with the downplaying the safety signal. You know, what's your thoughts on this? Yes, it's very telling on social media. The reactions that we've seen are mostly one of downplaying. Now, when we were down, when 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 we were talking about the T cell malignancy risk, I was on board. It was it's very low. We've never seen it. It's you know very very low. But this, I've seen all sorts of excuses on social media, and it's kind of it's kind of sad. And I honestly think it's a little paternalistic as well. Our patients deserve truth and honesty, right? They don't deserve us downplaying an actual risk. Our job is to lay the facts out and let them make an informed decision, not downplay things. And some of the reasons that I've heard or some of the excuses that for, for downplaying, they're, I mean, I don't, I don't buy that, right? So there are people who are blaming, you know, fludarabine, which is given as lymphodepletion before uh, CAR-T. So if, if it's truly fludarabine, then why haven't we seen such high rates with 
Idacel. Why haven't we seen such high rates with lymphoma cars? Yeah, tisagenic lymphoma. Yeah, exactly. We have so much longer follow up with those cars, and we also give the same lymphodepleting agents. I agree, we have room to improve upon those lymphodepleting agents, but but excuse me, but I don't buy that, right? And then their excuses: oh, we people are living longer, and maybe that's why. Well, people, we have long follow up from other studies, and people are living longer with other products as well, but we haven't heard anything or seen anything just yet. Um, obviously, I think that we do need longer follow-up for other products as well. You know, earlier this morning, we were looking through the manuscripts for teclistimab and telkitimab, and there wasn't much said. So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a small risk here. And then other people were like, oh, well, what's the mechanism of action? You know, I am a clinician. If I am seeing MDS happen, um, that's all that matters to me, right? MDS sucks, and I don't want it to happen for my patients. Other people will figure out what the mechanism of action is, but for me, this is concerning enough. Um, and I and I agree with what everybody has said. Later line setting, benefit risk ratio seems to be clear. Uh, you consent people and, and they agree, but this should definitely make us cautious about using this for smoldering myeloma especially. But even in the newly diagnosed setting, I have a feeling that if you consent people honestly and you tell them 10% risk, a lot of them are gonna say no. Um, so those are my thoughts, but this entire social media thing has been fairly depressing uh, to see. Um, I think the mechanism of action is particularly crazy to hear because the mechanism of action of efficacy of thalidomide was not understood for the first 15 years in which we gave it in myeloma. It was a, took a nature paper 15 years later to get into cerebellum and these sorts of things. So we still don't know the mechanism of action of inhaled anesthetic gases. Okay, so you can act upon information without f having the full understanding of mechanism of action. And if you don't, you're delirious, I think. Okay, so that's one thing to take away. Let's come back to the first, we'll, we'll work our way backwards. We'll talk about, we'll come to the smoldering. We'll talk about newly diagnosed randomized studies. Let's talk about the, the, the pentarefractory person. How are you going to choose between teclistimab and CAR-T with this additional information? Does it change your approach there? Raj, are you a little less bullish on CAR-T? If you have teclistimab, you have talquetamab. How do you think about those drugs? How do you choose among them? Yeah, so currently, you know, a lot of that is dependent on the, uh, like, the tempo of the relapse. If patients are relapsing aggressively and I can't even wait for, you know, the siltacil, the manufacturing time is also longer, um, you know, then I have to give teclistimab, right? I have no other option. But let's say if somebody is having, you know, a... Uh, like a slow biochemical relapse and I have the luxury of waiting, you know, for, for CAR-T and I can also give a bispecific. In that situation so far, you know, you know, if, if we ignore the secondary malignancy data, I was choosing CAR-T first because of some data that came out that with bispecific, the risk of BCMA mutations may be slightly higher uh, because, you know, of the relentless targeting of BCMA, whereas those were not really seen with CAR. But those are, again, you know, small numbers. But because of that, I was choosing, you know, Car, I would say cars first and also one and done. Now I would say I would have a discussion with the patient. You know, we don't have, I think, you know, we don't have, we have not seen the long-term follow-up manuscript from teclistimab yet. So that would really help. We only have the, I think about one year follow-up manuscript from NEGM. So, you know, I would have a discussion with patients and, and then, you know, we'll proceed. I think a lot of times though, it's just comes down to the tempo of the relapse and, you know, how, how patients are relapsing, you know, and, and we are kind of forced to choose one or the other. That's a good point. Mani, you want to talk about that or you want to talk about the frontline trials? You can talk about that first and then talk about, then tell us about frontline. How do you approach? There's many ongoing studies. So the patient should be reconsent on these studies. What should we do? So I agree with Raj that uh, a lot depends on the tempo of relapse. So I will be honest that I've had some people who were still responding to, to their last line of therapy and maybe the response was beginning to plateau. And we had a few extra collection slots for CAR-T and we collected them with the hope of giving Silta cell later. 
Um, and now I'm a little cautious. I'm like, maybe I should continue the same therapy for a little longer, try to get some more mileage out of it before I give Silta cell. But broadly speaking, I think that for at least for the pentarefractory population, I don't think this dramatically changes my decision making. It will change my informed consent. And some people might um, decide differently. I have had at least one person who, after, and this was before the secondary cancer um, discussion, um, he he chose Idacel over Silta cell because they didn't want to deal with the neurological toxicity. So increasingly, we, because you know different things matter differently to people, and some people might choose Idacel even more now, um, just because based on safety reasons rather than Silta cell. Now, in the newly diagnosed setting, there is one trial that I strongly have disagreed with for a long time. And then there's one trial that has its pros and you know I, I am cautiously on board. So there's the Cartitude 5 study, which is enrolling people and the control arm basically gets Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone. So Janssen is funding this study and every Janssen study, Deratumumab gets given forever, but for some reason there's no Deratumumab <laughs> in this. Yeah. So yeah, it's, really, yeah. it's really like sad, right? And then after eight, and there's no transplant and these are fit people because you're they're eligible for CAR-T. No transplant, eight cycles of VRD, and then they get dropped to just Revlimid alone. So this is a recipe for low PFS. And if PFS is what matters to you, then do a transplant and then do quads. If PFS doesn't matter to you, then you know maybe VRD followed by LEN is probably not the worst, but PFS is the endpoint. So control arm, VRD eight cycles, and then LEN. Um, and then the intervention Wait. arm is VRD followed by uh, Silta cell, followed by LEN maintenance. So. This trial is problematic on so many fronts because there's no daratumumab in the control arm. These are people who are technically fit for a transplant. If you value PFS, do a transplant for mm -hmm. them. And there's no quad either. So we've been bitterly opposed to this study. Aaron and I you know, spoke a lot about this and enrollment in the US has been very pathetic. Um, sorry, there's no LEN maintenance in the Silta cell arm. I messed that up. But enrollment in the US has been very slow because you know people know that the, you know, the control arm sucks. So mostly this is being enrolled in other areas of the world. So that's Cardiitude 5. Cardiitude 6. Wait, let's just stop there for one second. This yeah. is terrible. I mean, some of these same investigators are on social media saying that DARA is now the de facto okay. standard of care in the front line based on Perseus, and they're omitting DARA from their own trial, and they're the same people who are giving auto outside of the study. So right. you, you can't get auto, you can't get DARA, and PFS is the goalpost. Terrible yeah. study. Okay. Panay, the study yeah. was being presented at our center, and you know, you're reading the inclusion criteria. These are like very healthy, fit people, but they get by by saying, well, the intent is to not transplant. So yeah. the, the, that's the, yeah, exactly. Yet they're transplant eligible patients. No, yeah. it's a it's a horrendous study. So Cardiitude uh, 5 is horrible. Okay. Cardiitude 6, yeah. until now, I kind of like the idea and I, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. So that is a transplant eligible population. Um, and then they random, everybody gets data VRD induction, and then you're randomized to either Silta cell or an auto transplant, and then both arms get LEN maintenance. So this is a fair comparison for PFS. It's gonna take a longer time, but this truly tells you whether PFS is better with auto or with CAR-T. And I think this will tell you a safety signal as well, because you're now directly comparing MDS rates and AML rates between the two arms. So I think this study will answer valuable questions should be done. I think that there might be people who now, if you give them informed consent, they might choose to not enroll. But I think that this is an important um, study because it will answer questions. And the people in the study are not heavily pretreated, right? So if they're getting MDS, then it's probably, you know, at least in part because of the Silta cell, you can't blame, you know, multiple lines of prior therapies for that. So I think that Cardiitude 6 plays an important part. Cardiitude 5 was always a problematic trial, and now it's even worse, in my opinion.
I see. I'm looking at Carditude 6. It's really interesting. One-to-one -one randomization. In the uh, control arm, you get Dara VRD four cycles, then stem cell transplant, then two more cycles Dara VRD, then Len maintenance. No Dara maintenance. That's good, in my opinion. Uh, and then in the intervention arm, you get apheresis, then Dara VRD six cycles, then Siltacell, and then you get Len for two years. Very interesting. So the Siltacell comes last there. I wonder why they chose that order. I have to think about that more. Debug the disease a little bit more and before you give Silta cells so that you have less CRS and less neurotoxicity. That is my thought process. And then why did they not uh, allow you to do six to eight cycles before stem cell transplant on the... Uh, why did they give you two more Dara VRD after stem cell transplant on the control arm? That's how it's always done in all trials. I think it's uh, more of a regulatory authority. Like most trials in Malabar do like that, although we don't do that in clinical practice. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. We shall see. And Len is only for two years. That's another interesting thing, not indefinitely. All right. So I do think that's a, that study, it looks like 750 people randomized. That probably will be able to answer some of these questions. Okay. Now, Aaron, let's talk about smoldering. There's an ongoing study of CAR-T and smoldering myeloma at the Dana-Farber. Um, that's the best cancer center, some tell me. Is yeah, that... so only at Harvard can you give patients without cancer a drug that causes cancer in perhaps 10%, <laughs> if not more. I mean, like, you know, it's I I will continue to use strong language with this. Everyone knows my views on the treatment studies, the single arm studies and smoldering myeloma. This study needs to be halted immediately. I mean, does anyone disagree with it? I'm not telling you not to study. So you know, this product is not ready uh, to, to, en to enter the healthy population yet uh, with many patients never destined to develop cancer. Anyone with any neurons left or, or some common sense would agree with this. Uh, 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 I don't know how patients are going to be or are actively enrolled in such a study. And if the rate of 10% um, myeloid malignancies is true, then giving Silta cell definitely shortens life in people with smoldering myeloma because these people would, if you if you think that people in myeloma live 15 years now, you know they be, would have lived a very, very long time. And if 10% of people are now getting a myeloid malignancy within a year, you are shortening life by giving Silta cell early. And the sad reality is that in a small single arm study, like you, you know, you would you would never know. That's why randomization is key. That's why big sample sizes are key, and that's why it's important to look at OS as not just an efficacy um, endpoint, but also a safety endpoint. These I mean, aren't honestly, with cancer, yeah, they, they're yeah. not even cancer patients. There are some that are maybe destined to develop cancer. Uh, for sure. I mean, I'm if I had to bet, I'm way more betting this is going to shorten people's lives than make them live longer. I, I, if I had to choose, I, I would bet it shortens their lives. And even if it's not 10%, but 2%, it's likely to be a net negative. Because again, these are smoldering people in 2023, where smoldering means something different than it met 10 years ago. Monty, why don't you talk about that a little bit? You've had some couple really elegant tweets about how smoldering today where everyone is getting PET CT is different than the studies we're hanging our hat on. Absolutely. So this is um, one of the biggest unanswered questions in our field is what is the natural history of smoldering myeloma today? And there are two big reasons why the natural history of smoldering myeloma today is so different than smoldering myeloma um, from the past. Number one is that today's smoldering myeloma is called smoldering myeloma after rigorous imaging, MRI, PET scans, et cetera. Previously, all you did was an X-ray. So you had some abnormal monoclonal protein, you know, bone matter more than 10% plasma cells. You got an X-ray, you saw nolytic lesions, you call it smoldering myeloma. In reality, if you'd gotten an, um, an MRI or a PET scan, up, up to 50% of those people would have myeloma, all right? So the natural history of that is just so different than in the smoldering myeloma today. So number one. Number two is that 
in 2014, the diagnostic criteria for myeloma was changed and people that were previously the highest risk smoldering myeloma, they are now called as myeloma. So as Raj has very elegantly pointed out in one of my favorite papers that he's ever written, and he's written a lot of really good papers, you know, this is, uh, he by doing that one thing, you improve the prognosis for both smoldering myeloma and myeloma, because the worst smoldering myeloma is still better than myeloma, and hence the prognosis for myeloma becomes better, and the worst smoldering myeloma is now removed from smoldering myeloma, and the prognosis for everybody left behind gets better. Because and this is the, Raj's paper, Will Rogers Effect. Exactly, Will yeah, Rogers yeah. Effect, European Journal of Cancer. One of my favorite papers, I teach it every every time to new trainees. So because of these two reasons, we don't know the natural history. And Raj and I and Aaron are going to answer that question. There's going to be some really exciting news happening, hopefully within the next month. We're, we're launching a prospective study to define the natural history of smoldering myeloma with rigorous imaging done at baseline and rigorous imaging done at frequent intervals. All right, so that's really well said. And then I think your study is going to show the final truth, which is if you progress with smoldering on observation, how many progress with dialysis? And I suspect it's going to be zero in your cohort. That's my guess. Okay, Raj, any more thoughts on this issue? I mean, I think this has really covered all, I mean, all those sort of important points that I see, but any further thoughts on this, Raj? Yeah, I think one last thought I would say is the Cartitude 4 trial, which is a randomized trial of siltacil in early relapse. I think that will also give us a cleaner, you know, clean answer because Cartitude 6 is probably going to take a long time before it beats out. Uh, because in Cartitude 4, you know, there is no crossover, which is, you know, not correct. I mean, there should have been crossover because siltacil has, um, you know, efficacy in later lines of therapy. But there is no crossover, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, it will also give us a cleaner answer because probably very few patients in the control arm will receive siltacil. And if there really is a secondary malignant signal we would see that you know and the control arm is also much cleaner in cartitude 4 it's mostly data palm decks whereas in karma 3 it, it had like a mishmash of several different agents you know in the control arm so i'm really looking forward to the long-term follow-up of cartitude 4 yeah and i guess my only closing thought is i think you know we briefly talked about it but um we have so much more experience with dlbcl mantle cell follicular and all where they have long used car t products and no one has ever seen the secondary risk of AML and MDS. I mean, that's not been reported. Uh, so I think um, to to attribute it to these things like, oh, it's just long time and these things, I think it's, you know, mi it's misleading. There's something going on here. Um, but for now, I don't know the mechanism, so we can't believe it. It's oh, just, yeah. I don't know. My no. brain. Uh, I mean, until you do yeah. the basic science to find yeah. the mechanism, you know. You can't believe it. You can't. I mean, keep drinking the poison until, yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. I also think it's interesting to me that. You know, we've been talking about CAR-T a lot in myeloma for so many years. And one thing we know for sure is that 100% of people who get the product will relapse. And then the second thing we know is that to date, we still don't have a single randomized trial with a positive OS. I just think it's interesting. It's been a few years now and uh, still not yet, but probably coming, at least in the refractory setting. In the frontline setting, I don't know if they're ever going to get it. I mean, they may at best get a PFS. If I bet on CARTITUDE 6, I bet it's going to lose. I don't know. Car transplant uh, transplant's probably going to beat CARTITUDE 6. That's my guess. Um, all right, Aaron, any closing thoughts? I mean, in, in 2024, in a few days, you could have an elevated total protein, wind up at Harvard, get collected, uh, uh, apheresed, medicalized, get fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, uh, then get a CAR-T, get cytopenias, then get AML and allogeneic transplant. I, 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 it's just, a, this is a true reality uh, that I will keep on, you know, that, that's, that I'll leave those words with that. You're welcome. You're welcome for that, Aaron. Okay, and Mani, last word on this topic. 
All right. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, but this is definitely very sobering. This is a real signal and it absolutely should be a part of our informed consent uh, with our patients. And this is practice changing information because when I go back to clinic after the holidays, it, it is changing how I consent patients. All right. Thank you all for doing this. I'm going to post this real soon.